Kassat Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Cassat Conversations. I am your host, Heather Haslam. This season, we will explore the impact of trauma on those who work in human services. You'll hear from researchers, authors, and people with lived experience. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Charlie Smith. Charlie is the Regional Director at SAMHSA with the Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome, Charlie. So happy to have you here today. Thank you, Heather, and it's a pleasure to be with you. So as we get started, please share with us about yourself and all the good work that you do. So as Heather indicated, Charlie Smith, I serve as the Regional Director for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Services Administration. It's a big, long word. Um, everyone knows it as SAMHSA. Uh, and trust me, I will withhold doing the virtual cheer. Um, but SAMHSA really stands up and, and um, serves as the nation's authority for mental health and substance abuse. Um, and most importantly, that authority is really to kind of recognize the importance of substance use uh, and mental illness across the age continuum from birth to death, as well as the entire service spectrum. And kind of thinking about what do we what do we mean and where does government sit for emotional health and well-being, prevention, um, clinical treatment, and clearly supporting individuals in their recovery. Um, I've been in this role since SAMHSA established uh, 10 regional offices, which was 11 years ago. And I've been honored to serve in that capacity across three different presidential administrations. Um, I serve as the lead federal authority for mental health and substance use for Region 8, which is based here in Denver, uh, and it includes the states of Colorado, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Utah, and Wyoming, as well as 33 tribal nations and communities within that geographical area. Um, And while we may be uh, neighbors to Nevada, which is considered Region 9, clearly we're very, very closely aligned. Um, My background is I'm a licensed psychologist, uh, and I've worked in a variety of different clinical health settings, both here in Colorado as well as in New York City. Uh, And prior to joining SAMHSA, I served as the director and commissioner for mental health and substance use in the state of Colorado, um, where I was actually able to stand up uh, really a lot of Colorado's innovative activities regarding mental health and substance use uh, for the entire state uh, for about five years uh, in the mid-2000s. And so it's, it's really a pleasure to be with you and kind of share at least some of those reflections and yeah, clearly that, that background. Yeah, well, we're so delighted to have you and thanks for making the time to join us and share about all the important work. Um, you know, you mentioned something interesting. I loved your phrasing about where does the government sit when it comes to mental service or mental health services um, and substance use. And I'd love for you to just share your perspective on that. Yeah, it's, it's really a very, it's a very interesting role that the federal government plays. Um, But I think you have to take a step back and actually look at it, not from the government's perspective, but really from the individual, the family, the community that um, really experience and struggle Uh, with issues concerning chronic health illnesses, such as mental health and addiction. 
Um, and as a family member, as well as a parent of a child with severe anxiety, um, that system is really complex. Um, to find good care, to believe in that care, to actually follow through on appointments, uh, to understand when clinicians actually may change, what's your role of your primary care provider versus your special, uh, special therapist that works with kids with anxiety. Um, that in and of itself is anxiety producing and complex for a, for a kid, for a family member, as well as the community. Where the government plays is actually in a lot of different areas to try to make that system as smooth and seamless as possible. Now, it may not immediately feel like government's on the side of the individual and family, but we really are. Um, so part of it is making sure there's adequate funding. So there's good insurance. Um, there's insurance that's covering issues concerning mental health and, and substance use. Um, there is additional funding uh, that can backfill some of the insurance, as well as making sure that there's good provider networks. Uh, there's enough providers and they're skilled to provide high level, um, uh, high quality clinical care for our family members, our loved ones. Um, SAMHSA plays a critical role in setting and working with many of the policies that support Medicaid and Medicare, um, some of the work for veterans, um, many of the uh, services that are provided through Indian Health Service, as well as establish some of the standards that uh, really our healthcare system is trying to do a much better job at, particularly with mental health and substance use, which over the years, over the decades, has not been adequately seen as an equal partner with other physical healthcare conditions. And to be a part of that, I think the federal government, in this case, SAMHSA, really helps carry the message that we need to treat mental health and substance use just like any other chronic health condition. And we're really seeing some of that change take place. Can you share with us some of those changes? Yeah, I, th I think one of the things we're seeing is that there's a lot more coverage when it comes to um, substance use prevention, substance use treatment, and substance use recovery services for individuals who have Medicaid. Uh, we know that through the um, um, he Healthcare Affordability Act, PPACA, um, otherwise known as Obamacare, that really made an initial change to give states an opportunity to expand their Medicaid to make sure that mental health and substance were equally uh, available to anybody um, who was receiving Medicaid. Now, not all states have done that, and that's clearly their prerogative. But I think that that really demonstrates that we are now seeing in many states um, the importance about mental health and substance use that has to be delivered on by parity, um, and there must be equity within that system. We're seeing that there's a lot more providers um, available to actually deliver mental health and substance use care in our communities, through our community mental health centers, through our comprehensive substance use treatment programs. And we actually now are seeing many of our county public health agencies doing a lot of health promotion and literacy about what is mental health, uh, addressing issues for older adults that may have struggles with regard to sadness and depression, uh, and making sure that care is actually coming to their homes and or their nursing homes, wherever they may be living. Whereas 10, 20 years ago, earlier in my career, we had a real difficult time in actually growing those, uh, growing those programs. So I, I do think that there's a major shift um, that's taking place. And uh, we used to call it that individuals with mental health and substance use would struggle and be in the shadows. I think finally we're actually putting some light 
in those areas. And there are fewer shadows, but there's still a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and you also mentioned, you just talked about older adults, but you mentioned that uh, you really work from a lifespan perspective. And so curious if you can shed some light on what are you seeing today as the needs um, in different areas of the lifespan? It's a big question. I'm sure you could. That, that, that it could is a big question. It may, it may require a completely different um, podcast to actually dive into it pretty deeply. But um, I, I think we, we've been struggling as a country, particularly in the last three years, a, a multitude of crises, if we look at it from a, a large scale perspective. Um, we've been struggling as a nation with a significant crisis regarding depression and suicide. And that's been really longstanding. Um, We've been struggling with uh, a significant um, uh, crisis around opioids and drug overdose deaths, um, which um, really began to spike uh, about 10 years ago. But we know that that spike continues. uh, As of last year, I think we lost over 100,000 individuals to drug overdoses in the U.S. And then on top of that, we've had enormous turmoil from the pandemic. If we think about um, really the, the secondary and tertiary impacts of a uh, wide-scale pandemic being COVID, uh, we recognize that um, we've had to change our life. Um, we've been much more isolated. We've been, um, our sense of normalcy has been turned upside down. And as a result, it's really triggered uh, a lot of difficulty for our young adults, for our adults, for our older adults, with regard to kind of how to uh, manage the uh, disruption, how to kind of reclaim some of that sense of normalcy at the same time, some of the things that they have lost, either lost loved ones, lost connections, and just being disengaged from what uh, life used to be. And then on top of that, I would say there's probably this fourth kind of struggle that we've been really going going through, and that is a change in our social conscience and, and awareness about how we as human beings kind of interact with each other. And clearly the the challenges from the George, George Floyd murder from Um, the difficulties with um, other interactions between law enforcement and many of our uh, BIPOC populations um, has really kind of raised our consciousness uh, with regard to what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have really strong interactions with each other, to support each other, to understand each other from our own perspectives? And that in and of itself causes turmoil. So all these things put together are impacting our youth and young adults. Uh, those that may be more vulnerable uh, from marginalized communities, under-resourced communities, are really feeling a lot of that strain. Uh, and uh, we know that individuals who are transitioning in whatever phase of life are going through a lot of different struggles, whether it be depression and sadness and isolation, anxiety. There's a lot of effort that uh, we need to be putting into those areas that have been more uh, impacted around the country. Yeah. A lot of work to be done and a lot of support out there that's needed. Um, I'm always struck as I look at different statistics and watch mental health over time. And um, it doesn't seem like our mental health is getting better as a country. And I think you, I think you have good reason to actually have that perception. Um, and, and in many cases, even in my position, not only in, in my in my current professional role, but also as a family member and, and seeing how my children have actually kind of grown up and, and experienced um, their development and their changes in relationships and so forth. It does feel more um, t- 
tenuous. Yet at the same time, um, where I'm seeing is we have an opportunity. People are talking about mental health and substance use in ways that were never talked about when I was growing up. I frequently tell the story about um, when my children turned 13, um, they were asked by their pediatrician about um, their feelings, um, whether they were feeling depressed, whether they were feeling like they wanted to hurt themselves, whether they were smoking tobacco, drinking alcohol, using drugs, and having sex. Those are questions I was never asked, and probably until I was around 30. And just to kind of see that change and that acceptance about having those social dialogues, whether it's with a pediatrician or a family member or a um, leader within one's uh, church or going to school, those dialogues are healthy. Um, and I do think that that is changing and allowing us, I think, as humans to talk more openly about that. And as a result, it feels like, wow, there is a lot of pain. But imagine if that pain didn't have an opportunity to be expressed. Um, we would really not know how much pain is there and actually maybe actually contributing to it. And so I do think there's, there's some healthy interaction that's taking place within our society, which is also causing us to be very forthright um, to make sure that we're building new systems and being more responsive, particularly for those who are struggling. Um, and I know one of the things that we wanted to talk about um, is 988. And really that is an example of where the federal government really has been putting a lot of emphasis around crisis services um, and 988 as a way to provide people a easy, free, 24-7, 365 place to go, particularly if they don't have another place to go that's trusting. Yeah, and so these new systems, you know, I think we think that 988 is new. I mean, that's kind of a common, I think, misperception that we've discussed. And so, but if you'll just share with us a little bit of the history of 988. Sure. So 988, um, uh, if your listeners may not be immediately aware, is the new three-digit number uh, for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Um, that lifeline is available throughout the country. Um, it's 24-7, 365. You can call, you can text, um, and you can chat to 988-LIFELINE um, and actually get connected to a crisis counselor um, anywhere in the country, any time of the day. Um, 988 is not new. While the three-digit number is new, uh, the actual system is not. So for about 16 years ago, um, the federal government, uh, with a great support by Congress, established the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And some of you may recall there was the number was 1-800-273-TALK, or 8255. Um, and I think that Logic, the musician Logic, a couple years ago at the uh, Grammys actually performed the song 1-800-273-8255. But that National Suicide Prevention Lifeline was the first, again, 16 years ago, uh, to provide that national place where people who were really struggling with wanting to hurt themselves uh, and potentially commit suicide had a place to go. One of the things that we, and we relied on that system for a long time, SAMHSA, uh, my agency was the one that actually is responsible for that system. Um, and one of the things that we realized about four or five years ago is that system, the demand on that system was increasing substantially. Um, 
And some of the things that I was talking about earlier actually contributed to that increase. Um, but a system designed 16 years ago was designed to handle around 40,000 calls a year. Um, two years ago, we handled 3.6 million calls, and that system had never been adjusted. And so when we think about just the demand and utility of that system to offer somebody a place to go, to be connected, particularly in their most distressing periods of life, to have a trained counselor to be available to them, to talk with them on the phone, and then hopefully get support and maybe even connected right into a system to make sure that they stay alive. Um, the importance of that was substantial. And we had lots of evidence about how effective it was. Um, Congress then made a decision that we need to think about really expanding the system. And about three years ago, um, there was a, um, a piece of legislation passed to form uh, an expanded system with a three-digit number, which would be a little bit easier to remember than 1-800. Um, and so the number 988 was designated. Uh, and then this past July, so July of 2022, um, the 988 number uh, went live. And by live, it means that uh, it required all telecom country companies to have 988 as part of their uh, quick dialing um, system to directly go, um, anybody calling or texting or chatting, chatting to 988 would go directly into the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline system, uh, which then would direct the caller to one of over 200 lifeline centers across the country to include Puerto Rico, um, as well as Guam and many of our Pacific territories. Um, and that system even since July has managed over 2.1 million uh, calls, texts, and chat, which compared to a year ago, we're already seeing a significant greater use and demand on that system. But at the same time, our ability as a system to respond to those callers um, has gotten much more efficient um, and very, very quick. Um, so we're actually responding to calls faster. Uh, individuals are getting connected to. Um, uh, people when they're in distress, and the fact that we expanded the suicide prevention lifeline to be suicide in crisis means that it's a lifeline system available for anybody experiencing any type of distress. To include mental health and substance use and concerns about loved ones, it is available to anyone, anytime, anywhere. That's awesome um, and really incredible, the amount of lives served um, since July. That's incredible, 2.1 million. And I'm curious with that, like what changes have you seen or how have you seen the implementation of 988 help to address um, the mental health crises we're seeing here? Well, I think probably the most important thing, it really um, is giving individuals another place to go. And in some cases, a place to go. Uh, we know that... Um, there are not enough clinicians, there are not enough um, counselors, there are not enough uh, clinics and even hospitals for people to go when they're really struggling. And in some cases, uh, when we're struggling, we may not need that level of care, but we just need someone to talk with. Um, and having that trusted friend or family member or uh, somebody that we rely on not being available, who can we go to in our most precious and intense times of need? Um, and having that 988 number gives us that place to go. 
Uh, and I think that it really offers uh, the U.S. and everybody here that place to talk to somebody when we're, when we're in need. And so I think, if anything, it's one. It's not the only solution, but it gives us an opportunity to make sure that we're building a network where individuals in crisis have a place to go, but also having the opportunity to make sure that we do have enough clinicians and we're educating people to come in, enough clinics to support the people who are in need, supporting our schools and uh, our faith-based organizations and our workplaces um, to make sure that they have the adequate uh, capacity and resources to support individuals in those systems. Um, and in many ways to kind of even hopefully at some point reduce the reliance on 988, but still knowing that is, that is a tremendously important backbone just how we think about 911 as a backbone for somebody experiencing a physical health crisis or a public safety crisis. And I was thinking about this with 911. Has there been a, a change in the amount of people who have called 911 um, now calling 988 instead? That's a tricky question. I think one of the things that we do know that before 988, and even while we still had a 1-800 number, 911 typically managed around 20 to 30% of their calls were related to a mental health and or substance abuse issue. And we've worked very, very closely with the Department of Transportation at the federal level that supports 911 for the entire country. Uh, even though most 911 agencies um, and call centers are actually in individual counties, um, there is an oversight agency for 911. And in some of our projections as in planning the development and turning on of 988, we saw that we would be able to actually support the 911 system by diverting some of those calls directly into 988 rather than 911 having to manage them. Now, I think it's also really important to know that 911 is a three digit number for individuals in a medical and or public safety emergency situation. 988, it is a three different three digit number, but it has a very different purpose than 911. 988 is actually a live um, crisis counseling center, much like what we think about for EMS or law enforcement or fire to respond to somebody in crisis. 988 is a place that can respond to somebody in crisis by using telephone, chat, and text. And should somebody call 988 and require emergency medical on-site services, the 988 team would coordinate with 911 to get those resources to that individual to make sure that their life and safety uh, is responded to immediately. So there are some differences between 988 and 911. 911 has seen some um, different flow of calls coming in because of the growth of 988, and it's, it is balancing the system. Um, and then the other thing is really interesting. We were thinking that a large percentage of callers to 988 would not need 911 services, and that's held true. Only about 2% of that 2.1 million calls needed a referral to 911. So most callers into 988 are talking with a crisis counselor, getting the support they need, getting the connections that they need, um, to make it to the next day, to make it to the next week, and they don't need a 911 intervention, which is a very good thing and it 
shows great promise about the effectiveness of the 988 crisis counseling system. Yeah, that's incredible. It makes me think about the power of human connection and being able to talk to another human being in a time of need um, and with a human being with skills, right, <laughs> to be able. Uh, but the power of that is incredible in saving lives. And that and that human to human connection is one of the most therapeutically powerful things that we can offer. Um, and nine eight eight is just that. And you know, I know that you've that you're building a crisis care system, and nine eight eight is a piece of that. Can you describe your long term vision of our crisis care system and any anticipated outcomes? Yeah, I so. SAMHSA clearly is at, um, in a leadership position at the federal level uh, concerning really trying to put the pieces together for a very robust, comprehensive mental health and substance use care delivery system. And 988 is one of those pieces in the puzzle. Um, the federal government does not do this alone. Uh, so every state plays a very significant role when it comes to organizing and supporting uh, the Lifeline Centers for the citizens within their state. And so SAMHSA works very closely, is able to provide its resources to the states to support and anchor those 988 services. But when we think about what is that robust system, it does mean a 988, so someone to call. The second is someone to respond, that we know um, that when people are in crisis, particularly that 2% who really need someone to respond um, in person uh, when somebody is in need, um, there is an opportunity to think differently about mobile crisis services. Historically, the mental health and substance use system has really relied on law enforcement, EMS, and fire to be that response system, that mobile response system. But we also know that Having somebody in a uniform showing up to someone's house or location um, can be pretty traumatic and pretty scary. Um, we also know over time that there's been great efforts to do um, co-responder models, otherwise meaning that a psychologist would actually ride along with a law enforcement officer uh, to respond. And actually early in my career, I did that both in New York City as well as here in Colorado. I would do ride-alongs with law enforcement all the time. I did not carry a weapon, I was not wearing a uniform, and it give, gave them an alternative um, to supporting an individual in need rather than a law enforcement officer coming um, uh, to the scene and be the only one there. Um, building that infrastructure and building new mobile crisis responses where law enforcement's not involved at all, actually having mental health clinicians be the only responders is something to, SAMHSA is actually making available through funding to states to build that mobile crisis response system. That's going to be easier in some places than others. Um, we know that many of our rural communities don't have a lot of mental health clinicians or psychologists or social workers to be able to do that and still need law enforcement. And many of our communities, law enforcement are very trusted entities. But how can we support them to really, most importantly, support individuals in crisis? The third area that we're very focused on is if somebody's in crisis and they have to go somewhere after that crisis, we have to think differently about crisis stabilization programs. Um, a lot of times, and sadly, 
jails have been that default. Somebody with a chronic illness or in crisis for a mental health or substance condition should not be going to jail. They need to be getting good health care. We do have many emergency departments uh, and, emer and hospitals that do excellent work for individuals experiencing a mental health or substance crisis. But in some cases, those hospitals may not have the right skills and or setting to really support somebody experiencing a psychiatric disruption. And so we're actually looking to build more crisis stabilization programs for mental health and substance in our communities to work alongside hospitals um, and also to work with many of our mobile crisis programs so people have a safe place to go in the period we're having a significant period of distress. Because the last thing we want anybody experiencing a, a medical crisis, a psychiatric crisis, is to go to a jail. Uh, and to know that we need to make sure that we have good, ample support for them uh, immediately following that crisis. And then the other two pieces I would really emphasize is we'd have to be doing a lot more with regard to putting funding and resources into prevention. Um, how do we support our communities before a crisis even happens? And SAMHSA, along with many other federal agencies, are really creating a groundswell, a lot of groundwork to focus on emotional health and well-being. Um, to identify some of those um, social impacts on our health and well-being, to include stable housing and um, having access to economic development, having food on the table, um, having safe places to go and being connected to the community. And the other piece is making sure at the back end that we have a strong therapeutic clinical system for those people who are struggling with chronic illnesses that they get the treatment that they need and in some cases be identified early and then be able to be supported through that care um, rather than experience a crisis or a disruption of that care that can lead to a crisis. So if we think about all of these different structures, and again, it's really complicated, we know that we 988 serves as a foundation. It's alongside mobile crisis, a strong crisis stabilization system, and then a larger network to include health promotion and prevention, good clinical care, and clearly supporting individuals who are in recovery from a chronic illness. That's awesome. Um, I'm so glad you brought up prevention. Um, I come from public health, gerontology background, human development and family studies background. And in our world, in our medical model, when we talk about health, we're usually talking about illness. Um, and there's this continuum of mental health and mental health needs. And um, we don't tend to focus on what can I do preventatively with the food that I'm eating, the amount of sleep that I'm getting, that stable housing piece, even just all the lifestyle pieces that go into it. Um, and then I think about the social ecological model, right, that the policies impact. And so it is a very complex system. And um, I think for our brains, we always want like the answer. How do we fix this? Uh, but it's it's never that easy, I find. And we also seem to be a, a society that expects that fix to happen immediately. Um, and I think that that is also a hard reality when, you know, some of the illnesses and, and some of the disorders that we struggle with, whether it's psychiatric and or physical, um, take time. And for us as to be patient, to be humble, to um, kind of 
understand all the different kind of impacts to how we are how we are feeling and how we are doing is important that we actually support the entire person and so much of actually what where i come from and from philosophically is is also where samsa stands so we have to be thinking about the whole person and seeing that whole person from their background their culture um, their ideology their perspective on life but also how does their environment and all those things impact what does it mean to be healthy and how to achieve a healthy lifestyle? Um, and all of those things are connected. Yeah, I think about it as a ripple effect. <laughs> you make one change and there's a ripple effect, uh, either positively or negatively, really, for our physical and mental health. Um, you know, the vast majority of our listeners are human services providers or behavioral health providers. And so from your perspective, what is most important for them to know and take away based on the work you do? Another really big question, honing in a little bit on kind of 988, because I think one of the things I, I think is really important to know that in this very kind of new environment of this new system and how do we kind of elevate crisis care, I think probably most important for your audience to know is everybody has a role. Uh, everybody has a role to actually support um, each other, to support themselves and the people around them, um, but understand that they have a, a great opportunity to kind of, uh, with their knowledge and position, um, to be able to support individuals in need, uh, to be able to understand where people can go for help. And in some cases, it may be that person's coming to you for help, but know that you are not alone, uh, that there's a lot of kind of resources around um, you to support you. And I think it's kind of building that sense of community where you can kind of have your professional lifelines, um, but also to help that individual create their own personal lifelines when things get sticky or tough. And then also kind of really be an advocate. I think that we join these professions in either healthcare and or human services to, to really support humans. And this is an opportunity to be part of that larger network, to offer your perspective, to think differently, to help systems think differently about how to do a better job, and to really kind of understand where resources like 988 and the local lifeline centers are and how can somebody reach them. Where are the specialty care providers in mental health and or substance use? Um, who are those people that you can lean on for um, education and advancement in your own knowledge? Um, and how can you be stronger in your position to connect with an individual, be present with them, and understand their experience of their illness? Um, that takes time. That takes energy. But the ripple effect, to your point, is enormous. Uh, it gives that person on the receiving end a sense of being heard, of being in, uh, included and connected, which in and of itself can be therapeutic. And you mentioned professional lifelines, and I'd love to hear how SAMHSA can be a professional lifeline. SAMHSA, a lot of our resources um, uh, support um, professional development, and training. Um, so across the country, uh, there are technical assistance centers, centers of excellence, uh, focused on prevention, uh, 
for mental health and substance, focused on addiction and focused on mental health specifically, um, that exist in each of the 10 regions. And so here in Region 8, uh, the University of Utah, the University of North Dakota, and the Western Interstate Commission on Higher Education work across those three centers of expertise, offering free training um, and classes and professional development and webinars and learning collaboratives on a whole host of different topics that are available to anybody. Whether you're in the mental health and or substance use profession, or whether you're working in human services, social services, and education, and so forth. I believe in Nevada, the University of Nevada, Reno, is one of those very critical centers of excellence regarding prevention, as well as actually work with Region 8 on the addiction side of professional development uh, and training. In addition to all, and you can actually go to SAMHSA's website, www.samhsa.gov, and you can actually look up all the different training and education technical assistance centers that are available across the country, but also within your state and or region. SAMHSA also funds more targeted or specialized centers of excellence focused on youth and young adults. We even have one for zero to five-year-olds, specially designed for early childhood identification and support for family members for children showing very early signs of psychiatric disruption. And yes, you can identify early psychiatric disruption in the first couple years of life. We have centers of excellence for uh, eating disorders and the LGBTQ plus community and focusing on um, those that are peer specialists working as peers and community health workers in the field of mental health and substance use. And again, a number of different um, areas that can be very effective to each of your listeners work an intersection for professional development to kind of grow that lifeline, but also that kind of um, robust infrastructure that you have uh, to be a stronger professional as well as person working with individuals with mental health and substance use. So we have a whole bunch of resources. And by the way, we're not the only federal agency that's doing this. So the National Institute of Health, uh, the CDC, Health Resources and Services Administration, the Administration for Children and Families, all these other federal agencies are doing a lot of similar work to include mental health and substance use. SAMHSA is just fortunate to be working with all of them very closely and coordinating a lot of this free technical assistance training and, and really kind of lifeline development for all professionals. Yeah, and it, I, there's the saying, it takes a village. Um, and it, that strikes true here, I think. And sometimes um, I've heard from behavioral health providers, it can feel overwhelming the amount of work that needs to be done and the amount of people who are trying who need support and yet there is this larger network that we're all a part of yeah the network is huge and and as a clinician um, it can feel very overwhelming and I really resonate um, with um, the people you've interacted with and probably some of your listeners um, the workforce is is struggling I mean we are struggling uh, we don't have enough providers to actually meet demand. Um, uh, we are oftentimes feeling very burnt out, overused, um, stretched really, really thin. Uh, I was giving a talk a couple years ago, um, really at the, at the very beginning phases of the pandemic, um, and we were talking about how professional development, attending a webinar, attending classes, um, can actually in some cases be um, 
self-soothing and a little bit of a break from the normalcy of chaos, uh, particularly in the workspace. It can be a healing experience, getting some additional training. Um, and if you're able to kind of structurally kind of form that within, within your organization, again, that can um, help build some resiliency, developing, expanding that work, network, as well as your knowledge base. Um, and if we are able to do that, we're oftentimes able to actually help our patients a lot better, help the people that we're working with a lot better. Um, now, there are some other things that have to change along with that. Uh, there's a lot of effort to kind of grow the workflow, really kind of leaning heavily into how community members, how peers with similar chronic illnesses can actually be joining the workforce from that peer perspective. Uh, but we have a lot of work to do there. Uh, hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this season that we're wrapping up, um, you're actually our final episode is all about secondary traumatic stress and the impact of witnessing other people's trauma. And so I'm so glad you spoke to how even sometimes professional development can be a sense of retreat um, and a sense of healing for when uh, you're feeling burnt out. I think that's a really important piece. And, and, and I guess I, I would be, maybe I might use a different word than retreat because I think it's a bit of rejuvenation because uh, I, I don't think we're giving up. I think if anything, uh, we're trying to stay in the game and still uh, be uh, effective and, and present. That requires self-care. Um, and we have to make sure that we're really constantly being attentive to our own personal needs um, and making sure that we are keeping ourselves, our family, our, our personal community as healthy for us and about us, um, because that way, if we're doing that well, we'll be able to actually uh, effectively care for others, support others, be responsive to others um, even more importantly uh, and effectively. Uh, I've talked with a couple of colleagues this week, and um, this phrase keeps coming up, It's and it's coming up here too, which is interesting. It starts with you, right? As the clinician, to be grounded and healthy and well, um, it does start with each of us taking care of ourselves so that we can show up for others. Couldn't have said it better. Well, Charlie, as we wrap up today, is there anything else that you feel is important for our listeners? Well, um, you know, I, I think get to know 988. If you're not familiar with 988, um, Google it, check it out. 988lifeline.org is the website, www.988lifeline.org. Um, I think it's really important, and I didn't emphasize this earlier, as much as there's a lot of um, effort and infrastructure being built around that crisis service system, um, there's a lot of work to, that still has to be done to get the word out. Uh, I was actually talking with um, some colleagues in Alabama, the University of Alabama, Birmingham, earlier this week, and they hadn't heard of 988. And so one of the things actually we're interestingly doing in this region is focusing on getting information, materials, marketing information out about 988 to all of our college campuses and universities, where as a closed system, oftentimes they may not be as dialed into some of the things that may be happening in the larger community. Uh, but for all of you, think about how best to kind of capture what's happening around 988 making sure that that becomes a resource um, for you in your work. I think the other piece is, is be, be attentive to where you may need additional information, literacy about mental health and substance use. 
um, in that no matter what field that you are working in, um, it's, it's in that field. It's in the people that you're serving. Um, there may be quiet struggles, there may be hidden struggles, um, but there may be issues concerning mental health and substance use, either within the folks that you're working with and or your colleagues or families, that your greater knowledge around that would be helpful. And then finally, just know that SAMHSA, uh, as a federal agency with regional offices, are always available to kind of support you either with information, resources, and or support the work that you are doing. So while I'm here in Denver, which is not part of the Nevada region, um, you definitely have myself to reach out to, but your regional director for SAMHSA is based out of San Francisco. Her, her name is Emily, Captain Emily Williams. Um, but Emily and myself and a number of the other colleagues are always here to support um, any of your listeners and any of your communities uh, thinking about the entire um, healthcare spectrum, particularly around mental health and substance use. Well, thank you, Charlie. I can't wait to maybe have you back someday. There's several other things I'd love to talk with you about and to really hear about, you know, since it is 988, the launch of it and the um, impact, I would imagine you're going to learn a lot over the next couple of years that we can learn from too. So I'd be happy to, and it's really been a pleasure, Heather, to kind of visit with you and um, talk about some of these really important things. And I'd be more than happy at any point in time to dive into some other kind of uh, critical topics and, and most importantly, continue the, to champion the importance of uh, everyone's health and wellness. So thank you very much. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you for listening to Cassatt Conversations your resource for exploring behavioral health topics. We hope you found today's conversation timely and meaningful. Please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you want to learn more, visit us at our blog at cassatondemand.org. Cassat Podcast Network. This podcast has been brought to you by the Cassat Podcast Network, located within the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. For more podcasts, information, and resources, visit cassat.org.